If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. This morning will be topical in nature. We're, we're not, we don't do that very often, but this morning we are. We're going to use the whole Bible, but particularly some verses in 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians, page 811 in the church Bibles. We'll be starting back in Mark probably in a week or two. So just keep that in mind. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Amen. That'll get us started. Let's, let's pray together as we thank God for his word. Father, in your great love, as we read and as we study the written word, may we meet the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ in it. And will you please, God, keep us mindful of our weakness and of our sin in order that we will continue to genuinely love and appreciate the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we sang about, the only righteousness which is acceptable to you, provided by his suffering and death on the cross. And please, God, grant to me Your grace. I I need it so badly. If any good will come out of this talk, and God, please help us all to listen attentively, undistracted, and with joy. For Jesus' sake, we ask this sincerely. Amen. What I did on my summer vacation. That is often a subject when school begins that the teachers, some teachers give as a writing assignment somewhere along the first week of the school year. And if I was in that classroom having that assignment, one of the lines on my paper would read, on my summer vacation, I read lots of books. And one of the books that I read was actually a reread of C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm really glad I was able to reread it because as we prepare to look at God's word, On communion, there's a part of the book which can help us, it helped me, uh, and it came to me, in all honesty, like a sword just piercing my heart. I'm not going to give you all the details in case you haven't read the book for yourself, but Edmund is a young boy in the story. He had done a very awful thing, and the people of Narnia were in danger because of it. Edmund is a picture of me. Edmund is a picture of the entire human race and our rebellion towards God. Aslan, the lion, a picture of Jesus Christ, he meets Edmund. And he's going to confront Edmund in his sin, but the confrontation is not like we're tempted to do, perhaps for some are, are used to doing. Aslan does not spew out words of public condemnation like spit of how bad Edmund is and how he's done this wrong and how he's done that wrong, which is very, very cruel since we're all sinners. Nevertheless, Aslan walks together with Edmund, and I want you to try to picture this scene in your mind. C.S. Lewis writes, In the dewy grass, privately, apart from the rest of the group, Aslan speaks, 
excuse me, this is C.S. Lewis. He says, there's no need to tell you, and no one has ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. And as others drew near to Aslan, he brought Edmund with him. Listen to what he said. Here's your brother. And there's no need to talk to him about what is past. If you're a sinner, that's wonderful. There is no need to talk to him about what is, we'll say, the past. You see, Edmund was forgiven, and he was justified by Aslan. And what makes Aslan's reaction even more amazing is because of Edmund's horrible deed, Aslan's going to have to die. He's going to have to die a real death. Blood has to be shed because of Edmund. And C.S. Lewis does what I think is a masterful job here by not telling us about the conversation between Edmund and Aslan. He's guarding Edmund's dignity as much as possible, which, which Edmund was a real pickle in the story. And besides, we don't need another conversation because every well-taught Christian knows how to fill in some of the blanks, right? Edmund, I'm going to have to die because of the agreement that you made with the white witch. But Edmund, I'm glad to take your place. Edmund, look at me. Look at me, Edmund. I love you. I love you. So I'm going to take your place, and I'm going to take your punishment, and I'm going to die. And you know, it was 5 a.m. when I read that portion of the book, and I wish I could say I was like, uh, okay. No, it broke my heart when I was reading in bed, and I I thought uh, C.S. Lewis giving a beautiful picture of God's grace And because my heart was kind of like not good, apparently I don't fully understand it. Apparently I'm not there yet. Because even though I'd read the book before, that scene just caught me off guard. It was very, very emotional. I think my heart was telling on me. Here's your brother, Joe. Here's your sister, Joe. And in Christ, there is no need to talk about what is the past. No need. And as one thinks on communion, to whatever extent you grasp what is taking place when you participate, surely it's a picture of the good news that Jesus has given us to show how he, Christ, has made it so. You know, look how Christ has dealt with your past. There's no need to talk about our past. You just keep your eyes on Jesus and you just keep thinking about his past and what he accomplished for you on the cross in the past. You see, one of the things about communion is we need to understand it is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And so it's my concern in all of this that God will help us come well and joyful, mindful to the Lord's table this morning and every time we take the bread and we drink the cup together. Because we do not instinctively know what to do and what to think when we come to the table. So we need God's grace. And we need to be taught. Some of us need to be reminded Communion is a wonderful gift that God has given to the church to bless his church, to help his church, and yes, to grow his church. Communion is God speaking his love through and to us using visible signs, a table, bread, juice, and even servants. So we ought not to lessen God's intention in the blessing of his church and the routine of it all in communion. Communion is one of those occasions where we have unity with each other and with Christ. We have understanding. We have intimacy. We have koinonia. We'll more on that later. And we have, and listen carefully, we have relational, emotional sensations. Those all 
Choosing carefully. Relational, emotional sensations with our Lord Jesus Christ and with each other in a very unique way when we partake together. Because it's revealing that the message in the meal is what alone has brought us together. The message in the meal keeps us together no matter what. No matter what. A long time ago, Horatio Bonar wrote a hymn for the Lutheran church to be sung during communion services. And listen to what he says. This is just one line. It's beautiful. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. And he's speaking of the table. Here faith can touch and handle things unseen. You get that in the bread and the juice? Faith can touch and handle things unseen. Here would I grasp with firmer hand your grace, and all my weariness upon you I lean. Which is profoundly different than I ate, I drank, I leave, I'm good. Right? I ate, I drank, I leave, I'm good. How would you like to be on a date with your spouse or a date date? And it was like I ate, I drank, I left, I'm good. <laughs> Call that a date? Does that sound romantic? Desirable? Appealing? We've made the whole thing about ourselves, which we can be good at. Loved ones, communion is an occasion which is intended, let me just say it like this, communion is intended to be an occasion which we want to last forever. Think it through. Communion is intended to be an occasion which we want to last forever. Communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Communing with his people in a very unique way. And we want it to last forever. Can I ask you a question? Do you like leaving the people that you love? I hate it. I hate what it does to my heart. I hate what it does to my head, my stomach, my psyche. I hate when you have to replay the whole thing in your, your head and you just break down because they left. I don't want to leave the people that I love. Communion tells me there's a day coming that because of Jesus Christ, in Christ, I won't have to. That's unique. Coming to the table is an occasion, as Paul shows us here, that intends to do something deeply to the fellowship of God's people who he described in verse 16, do you see it there? As the body of Jesus Christ. This is passionate. This is love, pictured and experienced. And it calls out of us, listen carefully, it calls out of us every part of us, our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our wills, our spirits, our souls. And if you don't like the word passionate, if it frightens you, look at verse 22, chapter 10. You see it? Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? You see it there? That's love language, which is the purpose of Paul's words in the Corinthian context of idolatry, right? He's saying to them, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and also the cup of demons. You can't marry that girl, that guy, and then live like you, have, you haven't married them. You must come to the table forsaking all others, right? All other people, all other things, all other plans, all other God. It is, as, it is as, as if Jesus takes the marriage vows first, and then we are asked, will you, will you take this man to be our wedded husband, to be your wedded husband? And we say, yes. Taking the bread, yes, when we drink the cup. 
So just some phrases to work through this. Number one, communion is not in isolation, is it? And I say that because it's important to know that communion does not exist in in, uh, isolation in the Bible. It just didn't drop out of heaven with no thought behind it. Communion is one of the gospel signs that God gives to us in the whole of the Bible, old and new. It's a pattern that he uses in all the scriptures. And it's the pattern of the way in which God comes to fallen men and women who, has, who have lost their God-given dominion and they have lost their um, desire for God in their sin and their defiance of God. And therefore, God himself begins to restore that dominion and he restores that desire ultimately in Jesus Christ. That's, that's Romans 5, right? You know this. In one man, <clears throat> sin came, infect the whole human race, one man. But the second Adam... The Lord Jesus Christ comes, says Romans 5.17, with the gift of righteousness. Therefore, what Adam was made to do, if he had done it, would, would have enabled Adam to say, Father, I have done what you ask, and I have tended over your creation. It has reached to the ends of the earth. It is finished. However, you know this, Adam, as a result of sin, he failed in his work. Because you see, and this is important, in the beginning, the world was made good. But not all the world was made a garden. Think of that. The world was made good. But not all the world was made a garden. And Adam was given the charge by God, Genesis 1, 28, to extend the Garden of Eden until it reached what? Until it reached to the ends of the earth. Someone explained it like this to me. God, as Adam's father, did what fathers do. And he gave Adam everything he needed to start well in order that he could finish right. So he was given a perfect body, a perfect garden, a perfect plan, a perfect woman, a perfect father. And he was placed in the perfect place, paradise. But he failed. However, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, with none of those benefits, actually not coming to paradise, but just a broken down world, he tends the garden. He was actually tempted in that garden as well, yet knew no sin. So he conquers And he picks the weeds up, if you would, by the roots, which got in the way of his expansion. And his kingdom is brought in. And his authority is revealed. And he breaks the power of the evil one by his death. And he breaks the power of sin and death by his death. And he sends the apostles to extend the kingdom, preach the cross after the resurrection. And the gospel is proclaimed. And churches are planted, signposts to the world. The kingdom is expanding. The king is alive and the king is going to return. Long live the king. Culminating in what? 1 Corinthians 15. Remember that Jesus Christ will bring a world controlled by himself. He's going to bring it back to the father. And he's doing what what Adam was created to do but failed to do. And he says, Father, here I am. And the children you have given me, that's John 6. And it's all being presented back to you. Mission accomplished. It is finished. It's yours, Father. It's yours. Even to the place where the Son is subjected to the Father. Not in his divinity. That would kind of ruin the Trinity. No. But in his humanity. Again, Father, I did what Adam failed to do. And I'm going to present it to you now. You see, the storyline of the Bible is Jesus Christ bringing things back to the way that they were meant to be. It's one of the many, many things that he does well. 
So communion is not an isolation. It's a picture of how of God in Christ has restored things back to the way they were meant to be. We are all one in Christ now. We are one with Christ now. There are no relationship problems in Christ now. Look at your Bibles. That was part of the rebuke in chapter 11, verse 17. Do you see it there? I hope you do. Verse 17, Paul says to the church in Corinth, your meetings are horrible. Verse 18, when you come together, you actually, you're actually dividing. You're not uniting. Verse 19, why is that the case? Because you're so messed up. You're trying to show by your meetings, here it is, which of you have God's approval, right? You're trying to show who's right, and you're trying to point out who's wrong. And Paul's saying, hey, kids, listen to the Father. You all have my approval, not because you've earned it, but because Jesus Christ has achieved it for you at the cross. So Corinthian church, you need to stop. You need to stop. First Corinthians 4, what do you have? that makes you think that you're better than anyone else? What do you have spiritually? What do you have physically? What do you have intellectually? What do you have financially, relationally? What makes you better than anyone else? What do you have that you didn't earn, that you, that you, that you earned? Nothing. It's all grace. You're going to be okay. You are okay. You'll always be okay in Christ. Number one, communion isn't in isolation. Number two, some pictures for the occasion. Because pictures are what? They're like signs of, of life and, and signs of love. How in the world, back in the day, did we get along with just, you know, 12, 24, and 36 exposures to a roll of camera? To, <laughs> do you know how many pictures it takes me when I do my Snapchat thing with my daughter? To get it right, you know, I've got to the point where I just show her like one corner of my face because like I'm looking at the whole thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, please help me. You know, 101, 102 pictures. I'm never going to get this right. And the morning's going to be gone. I need to send her something. So I just give her a little piece of the eye. Dear Lindsay, I love you. God bless you today. I hope your day is wonderful. Click. Can you imagine if I only had 12 chances of that? (laughs) So this is what I want you to consider. The first covenant in Adam covenant of works, and the new and the final covenant, the covenant of grace in Christ. There are lots of covenants in between, and each of the covenants are part, if you would, of the story of God's grace. So when God makes a covenant, we can say a new covenant with his people because it was new to them in the Old Testament, he also always gives a sign, a picture of his grace with the covenant. It's a visible sign to God's people to say, look, I'm going to keep my promise because I promise this to you. For example, when he makes his covenant with Noah, along with the promise, what does he do? He gives a sign, Genesis 9, a rainbow. By the way, did you see that rainbow Friday night? Holy buckets. That was a big one. My wife took a picture actually on Snapchat and sent it to me. How about that? Wow. Okay, what was the purpose of the sign? God said it himself. When I see the rainbow, I'll remember that I have given you my word. I've given you my promise. It's a sign. And notice that, because it's so important that if we're going to come to the table of Jesus Christ proper as Christians, the sign that Noah was given is a sign that Noah doesn't have to do anything. And he doesn't have to 
Try harder. It's a sign of God's grace. I made a promise to you, Noah, and I'm going to keep that promise so that when you see the rainbow in the sky, you're not going to be thinking, oh my, there are 17 things I need to do for God, and I'm so behind on my Jesus list, and there are a whole mess of things that I need to do better, and there's a whole mess of things that I'm not doing right. No, God forbid we come to the table that way. Noah is given the privilege to be thinking, oh God, you are remembering your promise, regardless of me. And in the rainbow, a picture of your promise, I know that everything is well because of you, not because of me. That's in the Old Testament. Can you imagine if you were in a context, if you were in a church, and every Sunday, every time you're in that context, you were pounded with, you need to do this better. You need to be challenged. You need to try harder. You're not doing this right. And then you come to communion Sunday, and oh, by the way, God really, really loves you. How would that work in a relationship, in a marriage? Really? At night when the lights go out, you can go to sleep. Think of Abraham. Different sign. A new covenant with Abraham. And and by the way, the people who say all we need is God's word, okay, I understand that. But when you let God's word out of the cage proper, what do we find God saying? This is my covenant promise to you, and I'm going to confirm it with what? With signs. You mean like a rainbow? So every time we've seen the rainbow, we remember the covenant? Yeah. How about Genesis 15, the hot pot passing through those animals? Yes. The same with Moses. Moses was told by God's covenant promise, and God said, listen, I'm going to confirm this promise with the Mosaic Sabbath day, the sign of God's covenant. You can rest from all your labors now. God's going to provide. So you stop your work, and you stop everything, and you rest. It's okay. I'm going to make you a promise. You don't really think that your own power is the key to your well-being, do you? So you stop and you rest, and you let other people rest, and you come and worship God in the beauty of his holiness. And the same thing with those signs in that covenant. The forgiveness of sin, the sacrificial system, the day of atonement. Signs in them confirming, underpinning, this is all true. It's all true. You are forgiven. You are loved. You're going to be cared for. And we know that God didn't need any of the animals to promise the forgiveness of sins in Christ. But he did this because what speaks, if you would, in the ear, he also gives a picture with the eye. Blood has to be shed. Look at all that blood. Look how awful sin is. Every one of those sins. But I really mean it. I'm going to keep the promise but it's going to be a very costly promise to keep. We could go on the Davidic covenant. God promised the throne of David would always be occupied. But now what? The city of David is sacked. Second Kings, Second Chronicles. And it's been so long since someone has sat on the throne of David. So it seems like God has failed. There's no one sitting on the throne. No sign. Hey, 80%. 80% of the promises kept God. That's pretty good. You, I can live with 80%. Why would you? Why would you? Because God will not. So this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. 
And the baby's going to grow up as a man. He's going to hang on the cross outside the city of David, Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, who's now sitting on the throne of David, just like God has promised. Therefore, and again, look at your Bibles in chapter 11, verse 25, in that upper room holding the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. The apostles understand that God gave his promise. And in Jesus Christ, every one of those promises are fulfilled. They are yes and amen in Christ alone. And those promises are, of course, what? They are our promises. Therefore, God is saying, here in communion is a sign, a visible picture in the bread and the juice as it's being placed in your hand, a sign of my saving grace, a sign that all my promises are yours. And we know that taking communion won't make us Christian. But it will help us remember all of what Jesus has accomplished and promised. Because we are Christian. So when you come to the table, enjoy it. Swim in its grace. Commune with Jesus Christ and each other. I love old hymns. This is J.I. Packer. Um, He's quoting this hymn from a book I was reading this week. Let not conscience make you linger of a fitness fondly dreamed, right? Listen, this is us in our fleshly mind. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it right. You know, it's all the fitness he, God, requires is to feel your need of him. But again, oftentimes people say, well, you know, I don't really need this. I'm not going to make an effort to come to this. I just need the word. That's all we need, the word. Preach the word. Well, well, I want you to think with me. I want you to try this experiment if you're married. You don't have to, but it's going to help with the illustration. For the next six months, if you're married, tell your spouse every day, baby, honey, whatever term you use, I love you. For the next six months, every day, say, I love you. But also for the next six months, don't touch her. Don't touch him. No kissing. No caressing. No, no holding hands. No hugging. No squeezing. No sleeping in the same room. Do that for six months. And how long is it going to be in a healthy marriage before the spouse says, hey, do you still love me? What's going on here? Why? That's how we are. That's how we were made, by the way, in God's image. We can't pretend that we are okay without touch and kiss and sex and holding hands and each other and seeing each other. All, listen, all outward signs demonstrating our inward feeling of a real and healthy and vital baby, I can't live without you relationship. If you like, the outward signs transmit to us, it's mysteriously the realities in which they signify. Again, the outward signs transmit to us the realities in which they signify. And the way in the new in which the New Testament speaks on communion is that of that order. Outward signs, bread and juice, transmitting the realities in which they signify. Think of it this way. The word of God points to the Son of God. We all know that. They are words, just words, but they are alive. And they point to God's Son. Because without Jesus being alive, the words have no meaning at all. So when Jesus is preached or when the Scripture is read... God communicates himself personally because the word is a living word. It is Christ. The word isn't just words. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. 
These are the very words that testify about me. They point to me. They bear witness to me. And you need me. Not just the word. You need me to have life. So the word of God is the instrument of God to communicate to us the son of God. And it brings with it the son of God. In other words, Jesus is the key to understanding the word. Yes, because he's the outcome of the word. Think of it this way. Who invented the kiss? You ever thought about that? The human kiss. It's really messy, isn't it? It can be really, really wet sometimes. And with some kinds of kisses, it can be really, really, really wet. I was thinking all week, are you allowed to say French kiss in the church? If I'm not, I apologize. But the reason why I say that is because I remember the first time I ever saw my parents French kiss. It's like burned into my head. I was like, what is going on there? You guys, what? stop it right now. Somebody's going to get sick there. This is, what a peculiar thing to do. And what about the whole pecking sound? What is that? You can kiss without making any noise, can't you? I mean, I'm pretty sure you can. And of course, I don't know if I didn't say it already, the germs. But why is a kiss so important between a husband and a wife? It's because we understand the language of the kiss, right? We can, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, experience what that language means when we kiss. Because we can kiss someone like Judas, kiss Jesus. And it can mean something completely different than what it should when we kiss our wives or our husbands. Why? Because in the action of a kiss... And the words, the kiss is metaphysically embodying. We understand what makes a you, you, and a me, me, and us when we kiss. That's why we kiss. The kiss is a sign for the couple. Because there's a story behind the kiss. So in the action of a kiss, having its own language, that is not always self-explanatory in and of itself, the kiss. However, when you understand the story behind the kiss... It's like the story of the covenant that you made with the person, husband, wife. You're kissing. Aha. See, now when we kiss, I remember this is one of the things which fuels the truth of our situation. Husband, wife, and the two people kissing know all that. And listen, they can feel, I hope they do, they can feel all that. Because the kiss communicates intimately the reality in which it represents. Do you remember your wedding vows? I promise to love you, to have and to hold you from this day forward, better, worse, richer, poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish you from this day forward until death does us part. And what, do you, what does the official say after it? What does he say? Now you can kiss each other, right? A long, passionate kiss, usually. But you know what? He should say after that, and by the way, keep kissing each other to commemorate and to communicate to each other intimately what you represent, what your covenant represent all through the years, just like communion. Yes, the bread, the cup, signs, pictures, communicating the reality it represents way back in the beginning and all through the course of the relationship. My child, I love you. My body was given for you. My blood was shed for you. New covenant realities. Receive these expressions of my love for you. Frame your life in them. Frame your love for the fellowship in that reality. If you like, 
keep kissing each other, right? Because you understand when you pick up the bread and you take the cup, they are communicating the realities it represents. This is Jesus' love story to us. If your Bible is open, you'll see this in chapter 10. That's the idea Paul uses in verses 14, verses 16, verses 17, verses 18. It's translated partake in the NIV, but it's the word that we learned last week in Kids in the Kingdom, koinonia. It's a relational word, just like kissing and dating and sharing. There's emotion tied to the word. There's truth, stability, and emotion. So I wasn't trying to be cute with the kissing stuff. I was trying to be correct. Number one, communion is not in isolation. There's a whole story behind it. Number two, there's lots of different pictures for the occasion all through the Bible to point to the reality that God determines that we need signs, visible signs of his love. Finally, we come to the table, then what? Well, we said it for the participation. Okay, participation in what? Well, I want you to hold that thought. I want you to, if you can, if you're able, I want you to think, when someone asks you, if you're a married couple, and they say, or even if you're just dating someone right now, when they ask the question, how did you guys meet? Right? The kids would ask the question in our household. People would ask the question, how do you meet? How did you meet? And what we usually do is we answer that question, and what we do is we take them back to the beginning. And what do we tell them? We tell them our love story. You ready for this? <laughs> we were both young when I first saw you, Taylor Swift. Close my eyes and the flashback starts. I can't sing, sorry. I'm standing there on a balcony in summer air. You know the song, right? You know, I was Romeo, he was Romeo, and I was Juliet, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's nice. Right? You all have your love stories. That's not our love story with Jesus, is it? <laughs> Here's our love story. It's almost as if Christ said, when I first saw you, you hated me. You, you were dead to me. You were dating the evil one. You treated me terrible. Terrible. And by the way, sometimes you still do. Ezekiel 16, if you haven't ever read it full, I would invite you to read it full sometime this week. It's a picture of God in Israel, and he begins by saying, you were thrown out in the open field, despised. And you grew up, and I took such good care of you. And I lavished you with my love, and I lavished you with things. And you grew up, and you left me. And you trusted in your own beauty. You thought you could do better than me. But, here comes grace. <laughs> My father told me that you were going to be mine. He arranged this marriage. So I gave you my body, verse 24, chapter 11. It's all yours. It was yours. And I gave you my blood, verse 25, chapter 11. Do you remember some of the other marriage vows? I give you my body, and with all my worldly goods I, with you, I share. My death is yours. And when you participate in this story, you're telling yourself and you're telling others our love story. 
So that's why the warning there in verse 27, do you see it there? Be careful when you come to the table. Don't you dare question my love. Don't bring other lovers to the table. Don't think about your past, which I have put away. Just embrace this reality. Here is love. Here is love. There's a song that I was gonna, I'm going to quote to you. And I'm always interested to see a little bit about the people who wrote the song. And sometimes I'm like, I want to know their faces. And there's a website that does that. And so the song that I'm going to quote is, we sing it here on occasion, Here is Love. And I looked at these guys. These guys are from the 19th century. And I'm like, the faces of uh, those guys are a face only a mother could love. (laughs) But listen to what they wrote. Think. Here is love. Vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. And then listen to verse because this is, this is going to tie the whole thing together. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers pour incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice. What did it do? Do you know the last line? Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. In a moment, we're going to go to the table and we're going to get to kiss the groom. And he made it all happen by his grace through the cross. (sighs) What a lover. Yes? What a lover Jesus is. Let's pray. God, will you please make it so that always and continually your grace for sinners would be the dominant bent of the church and so each other. And that grace would be the chief expression of our love for others and it has to be the chief expression of our love for you. Father, as we prepare for the table, help us to, to come ready. For Jesus' sake, amen.